This is the Press Play Podcast, brought to you by Real Resilience. Any fan of the Beatles is going to love episode 16 of the Press Play Podcast, because it's dedicated to all things Beatles on tape. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This is the last Press Play podcast of 2020, and if you're glad to see the back of it like I am, I don't blame you. But perhaps the restrictions on our daily lives have allowed us to use our reel-to-reels more. Next year, in the reel-to-reel world at least, it looks promising. Thorns are now shipping their TM1600 open reel player, and the company's CEO Gunter Kurten will be in conversation with me on the next episode of Press Play. Also raising confidence in the open reel format was the results of a reader poll I saw on the HiFiChoice.com website. It was asking its readers what audio format they would like to see make a comeback. Top at 38%, ahead of minidisc, cassette and even 8-track cassette was of course open reel. But to this episode, my guest is Andrew Morton of Parlogram Auctions. That's his website specialising in the sale of rare and collectible Beatles memorabilia. An Englishman living in Austria, Andrew has an encyclopedic knowledge of anything Beatles and has made a personal collection of all the studio albums of the Beatles that were released on open reel tape. I was prompted to contact him after seeing a YouTube video he had produced comparing the audio quality of the tape and the vinyl versions of various Beatles albums. To see this video, search on YouTube for The Beatles UK EMI Reel to Reel Tape Albums. It's an interesting watch. Before we take a listen, I apologise for the less than best technical quality of this podcast. I used a new piece of kit in the recording and it didn't go according to plan. I had to wield the electronic razor blade quite aggressively to salvage my less than best efforts and even then I sound like I'm speaking from inside a yellow submarine. So apologies for that. So to our conversation. Andrew opened with a background of Parlogram Auctions and we went from there. Parlogram Auctions started uh, about 10 years ago. I've been a record collector all my life and being stranded in Austria somewhat, being on eBay and online was a, a way to connect to the vinyl community. And um, I started selling records online in about uh, 2000 and set up my own website in about 2010. So uh, the videos are really like a new project for me and something I've I've always been interested in doing. But getting down to these things is another matter but uh they're started and i've got a, a big list of things to do and the reel to reels were pretty much at the top of my list your knowledge of the beatles is encyclopedic as far as i can tell you're, you're going down to even stamper numbers of the of the, array of the vinyl pressings is it the beatles that you major on or is it all the music of that era that, that you specialize in it's mostly uh, Beatles. I mean, I've, as I said, I've been collecting them all my life. And um, just exposure to the records and the original pressings, you know, you have to dig deeper. People uh, nowadays can identify, you know, which pressing is from which month and which year. And to collectors who virtually have everything from collecting things on the Internet over 20 years now really want detailed information about certain records and that is sort of where the where the market is everybody seems to have everything but they just want the something nobody else has or they want a very special pressing and uh yeah the devil is in the detail as, as far as these things are concerned and it can make a lot of difference to the price which is important from a business point of view um, an early pressing is going to fetch uh, more money than a later one and that's all to do with stamper numbers and matrix numbers and whatever so it's it's a very 
small area, but very important as far as record collecting is concerned. Are you really getting into this sort of granularity of Beatlemania here? Is that right? <laughs> that's right. That's what it's all about. Well, they've been around for so long. It's, it's difficult to find, or what I'm finding with these videos, finding new angles to tell the same story. Um, and Real to Real is one of them. It's something which a lot of people know about, but nobody's really had a look at it in detail. And although I didn't go into very, very, I could have gone into much more detail about it, it seems to have um, answered a few questions which people have had. I said your your knowledge of the Beatles is encyclopedic, and I hope I'm not getting into areas where the encyclopedia is a little bit thin, but I wanted to talk about the studio side and the way the Beatles used tape machines in the studio to create their music. But what started um, my idea for this podcast was that you mentioned you have Beatles albums on five and seven inch reels, and you go into the way they're different catalogue numbers, and you can deduce when they were recorded or when they were uh, created. So you've collected the vinyl, but you're also now collecting the reel-to-reel versions of the albums. Is that for your personal use, or is that something to sell on for parlogram auctions? Well, over the years, I've had through through sales all of the reel-to-reels from time to time, um, but never really a collection in one place at one time, if you know what I mean. Um, so I've had the very rare ones go through the go through the auction site, you know, a few times over the last ten years, but doing this video I had to sort of make sure I had a decent collection in one place at one time unfortunately you know there's, there was a couple of people selling a batch so I was quite lucky in that respect because some of the later ones are very very difficult to get hold of which I didn't have for this video and I had to use sort of archive pictures but they're they're very difficult to find these days is that because they weren't produced in the numbers that vinyl was produced in or perhaps they haven't been looked after as well as the vinyl as I said in the video, these machines weren't for your average teenagers. You had your dance set and whatever, and teenagers bought singles. So the market for the reel-to-reel tapes is, is quite odd. I mean, they were more expensive than the vinyl. They were much more expensive than the singles. And, you know, grown-ups buying Beatles tapes wasn't really happening. I mean, they very rarely bought the vinyl LPs, so buying the tapes. So they were sold in very small quantities, and they were produced in very small quantities too. And as I said, they were all unlike cassettes, duplicated in real time. I mean, EMI had a huge bank of BTR tape machines with these running all the time. And they didn't sell very well. Um, and, of course, like most things from that era, a lot of stuff got chucked away. You know, 90% of things got chucked away. And what survives today is only really by luck or by good fortune. We are, of course, looking at it now that it's uh, memorabilia and the value it has. But at the time, it was something of its time. It was just a reel-to-reel tape of the Beatles, popular as they were. But they, you know, they didn't have the stratospheric worldwide granularity of Beatlemania that it's got today. So some of those tapes were just perhaps the tape machine chewed them up or it's just, oh, it's a Beatles tape. I've got the vinyl and uh, people threw them away. It was, is that likely to have happened? Yeah, absolutely. And and recorded over them as well, obviously. <laughs> so that <laughs> happened all the time. How many of the Beatles albums were released on tape? Uh, in the UK, they were all released on tape, um, except for Yellow Submarine, which was uh, very much the poor relation in the catalogue and, and uh, didn't actually get a cassette release until 1974. So they didn't really bother about that one. But they all came out in or about the same time as the vinyl. But in America, they did them a bit better. They put them on seven and a half inches per second and they did yellow submarine and hey jude and some of the later ones as well and in japan as well they're also on reel to reel and were very much aimed at a hi-fi market whereas i don't think the british ones were you said seven and a half ips they were a bit better so they were recorded at a slower speed for the uk market 
Yeah, there were three and a three quarters inches per second. So EMI owned the tape manufacturing facility. So it, put, it was probably cheap for them to, to have the tape. So why they didn't use a faster reel, I don't know. But they were very a very tight company and would save money everywhere. They are geared to vinyl. They know how big a vinyl record is, how thick it is. You've got a five-inch reel. It's quite thick. It's it's probably a size for size heavier than a vinyl record. So you've got all that shipping to take into account. What did they come in? Plastic boxes or cardboard boxes? The reels came in cardboard boxes. They were four-inch reels, in fact. Please, please me. The first ones, the early ones, came on five-inch reels. But then they they even cut costs on that by putting them on four-inch reels and making a special sort of cardboard inner tray to sort of support that in the five inch box. So they were looking to cut corners all the time and the boxes were, they had the album cover on the front and just some credits on the back. I mean, they were not laminated, they were quite cheaply put together and they fell apart very quickly, which is why they're very difficult to find in decent condition these days. These tapes, were they two track or were they four track? Well, the early, the mono tapes were two-track mono. So side one was side one and flipped it over and that was side two and that was it. The four-track stereo tapes, which uh, came out in 68, they were split on each side. So that was the way they did the stereo, yeah. We talked about the boxes. How about the actual tape itself? How has that survived? They're not covered in mould, are they? No, they're, they're all very clean. I mean, I think EMI tape was probably a bit better than some of the other products that were around at that time and uh, didn't really shed very much at all. And that most of the tapes are in pretty good condition. The printed leader tapes have bled, the ink on the printed leaders have bled quite a lot and they, they sort of um, become very blurry. But the actual tape is quite good. But I think it was um, more of a case of the way they were recorded in the first place. They were slow speed, um, they weren't for hi-fi consumption. And um, I, I just think it, it was the nature of the way they were recorded rather than the way they survived. Interesting you say about the, the ink on the leader tape has, has bled. You said EMI were rather a skinflint company, but I noticed that on the video that the, the leader tapes were specially printed. Yeah, you had the uh, parlophone, then the tape number, then the speed it was to be played at, so track one if it was side one, and uh, the title of the album, and the artist, and the recording for its published date, and then the copyright information. So they got their name on <laughs> everything. Even with the early cassettes, um, they printed the catalogue number on the leader tape. Um, which was quickly discarded. But yeah, they, they really made sure they put their name on everything so it was an EMI product and every, they wanted everyone to know it. In your estimation, how many of these Beatles albums on tape are around today? Oh, I really don't know. I mean, I have to have a look at the... I, it's impossible to find the sales figures for these things, but I'm, I'm sure they were... For every 10 albums that were sold, maybe one tape was sold. It was must have been very low. And um, as time goes on, people throw things away. I mean, it's the amount of times I've, I've heard a story from somebody I bought something off. Oh, we had a whole bag of these, but we just went down the dump and threw them away, you know. But everything you see on eBay looks like a lot of stuff, but it's only point something something of a percent which survives. That everything else was dumped. So much stuff gets thrown away and people don't realise how lucky they are that actually things survive because... I'm sure you've moved house and, and changed your circumstances. You just ah, throw it away. And when you live with something for so long, like a tape like this, even with records, it loses its value. It's just junk. And you see it in a different way. <laughs> so people, oh, I never realised these are so valuable. And we've had them around the house for ages, lining the cat tray and this. And 
the tapes themselves, you are obviously on parlogram auctions, you are measuring on the Beatles, but are you planning to sell these tapes as well if collectors of pre-recorded Beatles material are into that? Can they buy them still or is it something that's just as a, your own personal collection you've got these? Well, it, it's an odd thing with these tapes actually. I, as I said, I was uh, my, my first memories of listening to music was on a reel-to-reel tape and, and, I, and I had a, an Akai um, 1710 throughout my teenage years so i'm i'm very sort of emotionally attached to to reel to reels and i bought these uh, this collection of reel to reel tapes to do the video and then to sell but i find that more time i'm spending with them the more time i want to hang on to them but um you know everything is replaceable and i i think the the joy about what I do is that I, I can have these really nice records and tapes, enjoy them, and then pass them on to somebody else who I know is going to look after them. And I, I sell to collectors, and, and I know where they go, and it's, that's a nice thing to be able to, to share the love, as they say. We'll come back to Andrew Morton in part two of our conversation about the Beatles on tape in just a little while. Find the Press Play podcast on SoundCloud and our YouTube channel. Just search for Real Resilience. Saturday, the 23rd of January 2021, will see me holding a webinar on how to carry out an audio lineup of your tape machine. We'll cover the principles, the tools, and the method I use to do this, and I'll pass on some tips too. It will be 90 minutes long to do justice to the subject, and it's at 1500, that's 3 pm UK time or UTC. There's a small charge of five UK pounds. I worked that out that it was about 5.5 euros, 6.5 American dollars and nine Australian dollars. That's to cover my costs, but that's it. Now, tickets can be purchased from Eventbrite at the following address, eventbrite.co.uk. That's E-V-E-N-T-B-R-I-T-E dot co.uk and search for Open Reel Tape Machine Lineup Webinar and I make some documents available on my website for download to accompany the webinar. The date again, Saturday the 23rd of January 2021 at 1500 UTC, and that's how to carry out an audio lineup of your tape machine. I'm aware this podcast gets all over the world, so I hope that time works for you. Tickets are selling well, and I really look forward to you joining me. Press Play, the Real Resilience podcast, dedicated to all things reel-to-reel. We return to the second part of my conversation with Andrew Morton of Parlogram Auctions. When you view the YouTube video that prompted this podcast, you'll see the details and effort that Andrew goes into when comparing the tape and vinyl releases. It was that difference between the two formats I wanted to ask him about. Well, the very different processes. The vinyl was cut as loud as it possibly could be. So that was their instruction. The mastering engineer's instruction was to cut the records in the 60s as loud as possible, bumping up those upper mids and, and really making it scream. And I think that's, that's one of the things which shocked a lot of people when the recent uh, singles box set collection of the Beatles came out. Uh, they mastered that exactly the way they'd mastered the 60s singles. And people complained quite a lot at the beginning. These sound terrible and they're loud and they're horrible. But... I did another video about it and they sound exactly the same as the 60s singles and people have been so used to the the reissues and the 80s things and sort of nice sort of hi-fi sound that going back to the originals was a big shock but I don't think that happened with these tapes the, the cutting masters for the vinyl must have been different than the cutting masters for the tapes because they didn't need that extra step between the tape and the uh, cutting head 
to make them loud. So they do sound a bit different, which I just touched on in the video. They sound a bit drier and, and sort of less, less of that upper mid EQ. Let's wind back a bit, and I hope I'm not getting into territory you perhaps are less sure on, but the Beatles in the studio and their use of tape. I was looking at some videos last night in preparation for this recording. There's the sample loops of Tomorrow Never Knows. I'm going to perhaps be a heretic here, but I'm going to say, in my opinion, the Beatles only ever recorded one great song, and that's Tomorrow Never Knows. And I've come to that from a tape enthusiast's uh, position, because to me, it was the gateway for sampling and modern recording techniques, and obviously through to the Sgt. Pepper album. But to use all those tape loops, to use the tape machine so creatively, is that something that interests yourself or you're only interested in the masters and the material that was released to the general public? No, I'm, I'm very interested in that. That's the sort of thing I was doing when I was sort of 13 or 14. Um, <laughs> back, in the, back in I was editing and I bought, you could buy little editing, editing kits from Smiths and I'd buy those and I would chop up things and do loops and, and edit together medleys and things which were big at the time. But yeah, that song, Tomorrow Never Knows, was such a great thing. Paul McCartney, that was his idea. He was the most forward thinking of that. He was the guy who was in charge of that and had the idea. John Lennon was totally ungifted technically. He did it. everything was by mistake and uh, the backwards uh, tape on the song Rain that he actually took credit for was a mistake and he admitted that but you know it was Paul McCartney's thing and, and people forget how much of a an influence and how much of a creative um, force he was back at that time in the mid 60s and it, you know and I, and I agree with you Tomorrow Never Knows is probably one of the the uh, the pinnacles of their career. Interestingly, it was the first track recorded for the Revolver album. I, I'm That's told right, it yeah. comes last on the on the running order, but it was the first one they recorded. I always was led to believe that it could never be created again because the way that the loops were played in, the way that there was a bit of slippage uh, in, in in the tapes, that they would all these samples would come in at different times. But listening to your videos, I'm led to believe that there are several mixes of Tomorrow Never Knows. Is that correct? Uh, yeah, there are two mono mixes of Tomorrow Never Knows. Uh, the first one, which they did, was only in production for one day and uh, pressed on very early vinyl copies, which had the effects mixed at slightly different times. They obviously had a, an idea of where they were going to go, but just by a few seconds, they came up and went down at different times. I think the mixes were done straight after each other. So there's a small variation between those. And again, it's one of these things which has only been noticed in the last 20 years. But that obviously is a very collectible version and that is, uh, is worth a lot of money and still is not actually available anywhere in the Beatles catalogue. So maybe when they remix Revolver for their next project, they'll put it on if they've still got the tape. I don't know. Moving on to Sergeant Peppers, how were they using the tape machines on Sergeant Peppers? In a similar way with tape loops or were they just using the razor blade and chopping sounds up and then putting them in, in the mix? Well, I think it was just a, it was a progression from Revolver. The only track on uh, Sgt. Pepper, I think, which had a sort of a, a more difficult technical process was being for the benefit of Mr. Kite, which involved George Martin chopping up a lot of fairground organ noises and things and throwing them up in the air and sticking them back together. That was the big tape project on that album. The rest of it was pretty much straightforward as far as tape goes, I think. Obviously, a lot of bouncing, a lot of reductions and things because they were working only in full track. Uh, but apart from that, and maybe the animal noises at the end of Good Morning, Good Morning, there wasn't a lot of uh, more tape trickery going on on that album than that. 
that was about the, the pinnacle really wasn't it of using the studio as an instrument because after that correct me if I'm wrong but were subsequent Beatles albums more straight ahead Let It Be certainly is more straight ahead rock blues um, uh, performance isn't it yeah I think they just got uh, more control of the studio themselves and uh, George Martin's influence sort of took a back seat a bit really and they just wanted to get back to to rock and roll what they started playing and um, they wanted to get back to their roots and they virtually sort of said on their last album we don't want any overdubs we don't want anything ever we just want to play it straight you know um just to to show people we can still do it and yeah i mean there was no other real tape innovations after sergeant pepper that i can think of really winding right the way back to the start of it they all had tape machines at home so they uh -huh. must have been creating and doing audio sketches for ideas i know some of these exist have they ever been released not necessarily on tape have they ever been released commercially or was that something that's just they've been their bootlegs definitely not uh, commercially there are some snippets on the anthology one of some of the uh, early live things I think Paul McCartney owns most of those reel-to-reels, the ones that he made, and I don't think he's going to make them commercially available. But yeah, they, they were very important in their early days, and I don't think they actually owned the machines. I think they borrowed them and, and they got passed around and stuff. But I'd love to hear more of them because, you know, fascinating musical history. There are some home demos on reel-to-reel. -reel. They did make a lot of uh, tracks on, on uh, the home demos. So they, they can be found on bootlegs and, as I said, on Anthology 1 the early early versions of the songs before they went to the studio they're very they're fascinating fascinating things so i hope more turn up i i, I was never a great collector of bootlegs you know when i was younger um i was too busy with the, with the release stuff but now you know every, there's so much hunger for new things and and any different angle and and you know any different noise in the studio or you can hear them coughing on this one or there's a bit on this tape there's a bit on that tape and and people are so desperate for, for new things that uh, any tiny little variation that comes out will get gobbled up by everybody. So I hope it more comes out. Well, we're getting way back into the granularity of Beatlemania here. <laughs> Andrew, thank you very, very much for your time. Could you just please tell us about Parlogram Auctions in terms of where we can find you on the net and how, if people wish to uh, purchase from you, how they can go about that? Sure. Well, our website is uh, parlogramauctions.com. Parlogram Auctions, all one word. Uh, we also have an eBay platform as well, which is uh, Parlogram. That's the username is Parlogram. And uh, as well as selling things for ourselves, we also sell for a lot of other people. So people uh, send us um, their items to be sold by us on commission because selling is, is quite a, a difficult and involved process. So if you've got a collection of Beatles things or even just a a valuable thing that you don't want to send through the post then we handle that for you and uh, and everything always goes according to plan that's it for this episode of the press play podcast from real resilience as i mentioned in the first episode of the new year i will be in conversation with gunter curtin of thorens talking about the new tm 1600 tape player the company has introduced i know it's been a great talking point amongst the reel-to-reel -reel fraternity a new machine on the market is a sure signposting of the return of the reel. And yes, I asked him the two questions everyone is discussing. Why replay and how much? You'll have to listen to find out the answers to both. Don't forget the 90-minute webinar on lining up the audio on your machine. That's at 1500 UTC on Saturday the 23rd of January 2021. Tickets £5, about 5.5 euros, 6.5 American dollars, 9 Australian dollars. 
and they can be purchased at the eventbrite.co.uk website. Search for Open Reel Tape Machine Lineup webinar when you get there. Tickets are selling well, and I'd love to have your company. Subscribe to the Press Play podcast on iTunes, Spotify, Google, or wherever you get your pods. From Sergeant Pepper to that skiffle group at the church fate, from Come Together to the Quarrymen, Tate played a massive part in the sound of the biggest band in the world. So until we next have a ticket to ride, let's keep it real. Hello, Ian Betson here. Thanks for listening to this podcast. Now, I have a favour to ask. If you're listening via Spotify, please follow this episode and the previous ones and share them too. Same if you get your pods via iTunes. Please share away. In fact, please do the same wherever you get your pods. It's the law of the jungle out there and what you do will make a difference. Thanks in advance. Until the next time, keep it real.